Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Sokah, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sokah and Azekah and Ephestamon. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had greaves of bronze upon his legs, and a javelin of bronze hung between his shoulders. And the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we might fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. This is the word of our Lord. If you've been watching the news this last week, you've been hearing about the terrible flooding going on in Paris. Here we're so dry, and they're having record amounts of rain. The Seine River is about 12 feet above its banks right now, and and they're having to work so hard to get all the valuable art out of some of these museums and move to higher ground. I was thinking a lot about it because at the end of our Reformation trip this last year, I told you how Marsh and I stayed on for a few days and and we went over to Paris. We wanted to go to some of those museums. We'd been to the Louvre before, but we'd never been to the Museum d'Orsay. It's one of those that's been moving all of its paintings and beautiful works of art. It was an amazing place and we loved wandering through it. I mean, you could have just spent days there, but we tried to see what we could on the first floor and then the second and we finally moved all the way to the top floor And when we did, we were going along and I noticed that there was a large group of people and they were huddled around some painting. And I thought, this must be something special. And so we moved closer and sure enough, it was a picture by Renoir. It was showing people who were dancing and others who were sitting at tables around the area eating. It was a beautiful painting from the Impressionist. We moved on a little further, and there was another crowd of people. And again, I wanted to see, and so we drew closer. And this time, it was water lilies by Monet. And everyone would try to go up and kind of get beside, and in the midst of the crowd, take a picture standing beside this beautiful and historical painting. And seeing all these people wanting to get near these paintings by Monet and Renoir, I thought about the story. 
144 years ago, that wasn't the case. 144 years ago, there was the Minister of Fine Arts there in France. It was a government position. And he had lots of other people working for him. And it was their job to regulate art in France. This was a very important thing. And what they did every year was they would have competitions and they would see who were the great talented young people coming along. Just like in law or medicine, they would find the artist. They would give them uh, scholarships and grants to help them have their education. Well, every year they also had a thing called the Salon. And people would bring their paintings, as many as they wanted. And there were all these competitions. The judges would go by, look at all these paintings. And then they'd decide, did they stamp it with a red R, which meant rejected? Or did they keep it? If they did, they would be hung in this huge place called the Palais. And in the Palais, there might be 4,000 paintings. And every year from May, starting the first week in May, for six weeks, there would be this wonderful art show. A million people would come to look at the art. And if you had been chosen by the judges to hang in the salon, well, that's where you sold them. That's where you got credibility. It's where you made money. And if you didn't, well, then that's where it got tough. And you could go hungry. Well, there was this group of painters. It was Renoir, Monet, Dega, Pissarro. They didn't want to be painting like the people required everybody to paint. You see, the Ministry of Fine Arts, well, they wanted everybody to paint like it was a photograph. Perfect. Everything to micro detail. No brush strokes. They wanted the proper type of material, like it had to be on religion or war, history, grieving, weeping, beautiful women. Something like that was what you could paint. A serious subject. But that's not what they wanted to paint. No, they wanted to paint scenes of everyday life, like sitting around a cafe, dancing in the streets, water lilies, a picnic on a boat. They wanted to create an impression. You could see the brushstrokes. There was color. There was light and dark. They became known as the Impressionist. A whole different style with a whole different subject. And all of these judges would have none of it. And so these people were starving to death, almost literally. They could not get their painting shown. No one was interested. And they had to make a decision. How do we stand up to the powerful establishment? And how do we be ourselves? So it was in 1874, they decided to rent a space and hold their own art showing during the Salon. And they invited all of their friends, Dega, Pissarro, Monet, Renoir. You paint the pictures that you want, these impressionist paintings. There's no judging, no competition. Whatever you want will be hung. There was 165 paintings. 165 paintings were hung. And that year, 3,500 people came to see them. Not a million, but there were 3,500. And some people who came 
were awed. Some people were aghast. But they came. And it was enough to create a stir. And people began to talk and to think. And some even decided to buy. The Impressionists were born. If you took those 165 paintings from that first first gallery showing and you wanted to buy them all, it would cost you a little over $1 billion. And 144 years ago, they were starving to death because it's not what the powerful and those who had in control wanted. But it truly was a story of the weak, the powerless, confronting their giant and winning. A David and Goliath. It's the scripture that I want us to look at this morning. David and Goliath. This year I've been starting off by telling you the stories that I think may be the most famous and maybe the most important in the Bible. We've looked at Adam and Eve, the prodigal son. We've looked at the Good Samaritan. Today I want to look at David and Goliath. You know, it is one of those stories that is known in our culture, whether you're religious or not. Even if people don't go to church, if you went and said to somebody, this is kind of like David and Goliath, they know what you're talking about. In a sporting event, yeah, it's David and Goliath. They know that, but my guess is they don't really know the story or how the story tells you to confront your giants. I want us to know the story. I want moms and dads and grandparents to be able to tell the story to your children and your grandchildren and what it means. David and Goliath, the scene is set about 1050 to 1075 BC. It's during the reign of Saul. Saul is the king of Israel. The Philistines Well, we believe they came from the island of Crete. They were a seafaring, warring people. Very disciplined, strong. They were advanced. They had iron. The people of Israel had bronze. And iron beats bronze every time. They had iron chariots. They had iron weapons. The Philistines came and they settled in the southwestern part of Israel near what we know as Gaza. And they had settled there, and then they decided they were going to move through the valleys that would lead them to Jerusalem, Bethlehem. They would cut the kingdom of Saul in two. And so they started moving through the valleys, and when Saul heard it, he raised his army to run down to confront them. And they met in the valley of Elon. It had been a famous battle site many times. And now you had the Philistines who were on the ridge on the south and you had the people of Israel and Saul on the ridge on the north and they literally sat there and looked across the valley of Elon at each other. You see, nobody wanted to come down the side of the mountain across the valley and then go up towards the enemy who had the high ground. That was suicide. So the Philistines waited and the people of Israel waited and they looked at each other for weeks and weeks. Now, the Philistines, they had a warrior named Goliath who stood probably about 
7 to 10 feet. Most scholars say somewhere between 7 and 10 feet. And he would come out each day and he issued a challenge. If you've got one warrior to come and to fight me, let's fight. Winner take all. And then he would utter curses to the people of Israel and slander the God of Israel, Yahweh. He was an amazing, intimidating man. And standing seven to ten feet tall, and you stood usually five to five and a half foot tall, he was a giant. Nobody wanted to go fight. Now, doctors, it's interesting, you know, they've kind of weighed in and looked at all this and thought about David and Goliath. And there's all kinds of things that I can't go into today, but I will on Wednesday night alive. No, they think that maybe Goliath had acromegaly. Acromegaly, which is a benign tumor on your pituitary gland so that it continues to secrete growth hormone. And you keep growing all of your life. And that's why he was 7 to 10 feet tall. It also can wind up affecting your eyesight. And it maybe would explain why you have a great warrior who has to have a shield bearer go before you. If you don't see well, you maybe need someone to help you get into the right place to go fight. Then it's why he'd say to David, come near me. Come near so I can feed your flesh to the birds and to the, the beasts of the field. I need you to get near me so I can see you here. We think he may have had this condition. but We know he was a big man. And everyone was full of dread and scared to death. Now he did this for 40 days. In the meantime, you have Jesse. Jesse lives near Bethlehem. He has eight sons. The three oldest sons, they go into the army to fight with Saul. The youngest son is David, and he's a shepherd boy. He stays at home taking care of the family sheep. Well, Jesse wants to know how his three sons are doing there at the front lines, and he wants to make sure they're fed, so he sends David to take food to their three, his three brothers there at the front line. And you can only imagine as a young boy to get to go see where the action is. David is excited and he takes the food to his three brothers. And he gets there to see what's going on. And that's about the time that Goliath comes out and issues the challenge. And David looks at his three brothers and says, who's going to go fight? And they just said, just be quiet. He goes and asks other people, who's going to go fight for the Lord? Nobody. They're scared to death. And so finally David goes to Saul and says, I will go fight the giant. The story is set. A shepherd boy and a giant to do battle in the valley of Elon. I want to continue on this morning with the sermon series, Telling the Story. I believe it is important that you and I learn the stories like David and Goliath so that in time in our world that I believe is unprecedented with the rate of change, you and I can remember our values. We've been looking at the book, Thank You for Being Late, by by Thomas Friedman. And I think he makes a great case in showing 
how our world has changed dramatically in the last 11 years, the last decade. It's when you and I got smartphones. Can you imagine giving up your smartphone or your tablet? It's changed the way you and I live. Facebook, it didn't exist 11 years ago. Two billion people around the world communicate with it each week. All the social media, Snapchat and Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, all these things, they didn't exist. And yet my grandchildren are growing up in a world where they'll never know anything but this. It is so different. The technology, 3D printers, are you kidding me? Driverless cars? Did, did you see the, the grocery store that got announced this last week out in Seattle by Amazon? The new grocery store, you can go into it and you go around and you can kind of pick up whatever you want and put it back, pick up it, whatever, just go shop, put it in your bag and walk out the door. There's no cashier. You need to have an app from Amazon and when you leave, they know what you took and it's charged to your account. There is no cashier. There's no waiting in line. There's no self-checkout. You go in, you pick it up, and you leave. How you grocery shop is changing. And after you've done it a couple times and you come in after being gone for two or three weeks and you're shopping, you may get a notification. Have you forgotten the bread? Yeah, it's going to be different the way you go grocery shop. The world is changing every five to seven years the way you live, how you'll communicate, and what you will do. And I believe it is easy to forget who we are, to lose our grounding, our sense of values. It is important for us to know the stories, the stories of faith, so we know our values. It's important to know our story and how God has related to us and how have we loved and been loved. For if you know your story and you know the stories of faith, then you can live in this world that is changing so rapidly and you can still live with a sense of confidence and joy rather than in fear. So we're going to focus on telling the stories and learning things like David and Goliath. For when you read the story, I hope it'll make you ask questions like, what fears am I afraid to confront? What giants are in my life? Am I trying to be something that I'm not? What does it mean to say I feel adequate or inadequate to confront my giants? There's much to learn from the story. Three things that I want us to see today. First of all, the story teaches us that we will either confront or be controlled by our fears. You either confront them or you'll be controlled by them. Every day that Goliath came out and threatened the people of Israel, 40 days in a row, they did nothing. And I promise you, every day they did nothing, the giant got bigger in their minds, got bigger and scarier. And they became more distraught and afraid. 
we all have giants in our lives. Maybe it's with health. Maybe you know something isn't right and you're afraid to look. Maybe you've looked and now there's a diagnosis and you think, how in the world can I handle it? I can't do it. Maybe it's money. You know it isn't working, but you're afraid to sit down and look at it and confront it. Or maybe it's a relationship. You're afraid it isn't right, it's not working, but can you talk about it? Maybe life has handed you some circumstances you didn't ask for and didn't deserve. And you think, how in the world can I ever deal with this? It has changed my life forever. And you literally want to quit. We all face giants. Things that make us afraid. And we will either confront them or they will control us. You know, every week when we get together at our staff meetings... We talk about values. We, about 15 years ago, we made up a list of values, things that we think are important and, a, and principles that we believe we need to live by. And we look at a different one each week and we keep on doing it. And as soon as we're through, we're doing it again and then again. have been doing it for 15 years. So we've talked about them over and over and over again. But I think that's how you know the story, your values. And one of those things that we really embrace is called the Stockdale Paradox. You should be able to walk up to any staff and say, can you tell me what the Stockdale Paradox is? And they can tell you. If they can't, you need to tell me. <laughs> the Stockdale Paradox actually goes to back to Admiral Jim Stockdale. He um, was the highest ranking pilot or officer in the United States who got shot down over North Vietnam, was put into a prisoner of war camp, and... He would be there for six years, brutally tortured over 20 times. And when he finally got out and did get to come home, he'd be deaf in one ear, he'd have a limp, one hand would be somewhat deformed because of all the brutal torture. But he came home and he wasn't bitter and angry. He embraced life. He and his wife were still in love. He lived well. He lived a meaningful life. Well, Jim Collins, who wrote Good to Great and in search of excellence, he, he had read Admiral Stockdale's book. And he was so moved by it, he called him and said, can I come interview you? And he flew out to Stanford. And he got with Admiral Stockdale and said, look, I've read your book. I know how it ends. But when I read it, I got to tell you, it still depressed me. How in the world did you survive all those years? And Admiral Stockdale said, I never for a moment doubted that I was going to survive and get through this and that I would come home and take this event and turn it for good in my life. Wow. So tell me, who didn't survive? Oh, that's easy. The optimist. What? You, you, you just said, no, no. The optimist. Well, that was the person who, when they were shot down got put in this POW camp and said, we're going home by 4th of July. And 4th of July came and went and we didn't go home. We're going home by Christmas. And Christmas came and went and we didn't go home. We're going home by Easter. And Easter came and went and we didn't go home. And we were back to the 4th of July. And they died. 
No, you have to confront the most brutal facts of the current reality and have an undying faith that you will be successful. To do both. To look at the most brutal facts of the current reality. To face your giants. To look at those things that bring you fear and dread. And have an undying faith that you can deal with them. And we will deal with them through the grace of Christ. David saw Goliath and he said to Saul, I'll go fight for the Lord. Your fears will either be confronted by you or they will control you. Secondly, David went to go fight Goliath as a shepherd boy because that's who he was. Now, I loved this story as a kid growing up. I loved going to Sunday school, hearing about David and Goliath. My mom would talk to me about the story. And one of the scenes I loved about it was when David comes to Saul and says, I'll go fight. And Saul's grateful. Somebody will. And says, I'll give you my armor. It's the best in all of Israel. My helmet and sword and my shield. And, and David puts it on. And then he says, I can't do this. I'm not a warrior like Goliath. I'm a shepherd boy. I'm a slinger. He had a sling. Now you need to understand a sling. It was this long, uh, like a rope. And in the middle of it, you would have a, a leather pouch. And you could put a, a rock in it, or you could ultimately have lead balls in it. But you start swinging it above your head. And as you swing it, and you start picking up speed, you let out more and more and more line. And now the, the circumference gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And you keep up the speed, and now you're really creating force. And when you let it go, a slinger, they can be amazing. We know that slingers had the ability to hit a bird in mid-flight. There were slingers who could sling a rock a hundred yards and hit a tar target no bigger than this. Now that's amazing. David was a slinger and not a warrior. Had David tried to put on armor and go fight Goliath like Goliath expected, like all the army expected... Well, that's not a good idea. He's going to lose. But he was going as a shepherd boy who had a sling. And what scientists have shown is if someone knows how to work a sling, at 35 yards, when you get this thing wound up, you're throwing a rock at the pace of a small handgun. Advantage shepherd. Yeah, the answer that he needed was to be himself, not a warrior like everybody expected. He was a shepherd who had a, was a slinger. And he had the answer to fighting his giants by being himself. Now, this is the challenge you and I are having with social media. What a wonderful thing to communicate in real time around the world with so many but one of the things we're learning now is that it's affecting our children and grandchildren and us as adults. They're showing those who spend more and more time on social media tend to become depressed. Because you're looking at how good everybody's life is. 
And do I look like them? Do I act like them? Do I have a house like theirs? Do I go on vacation like them? We spend our lives now comparing with other people. We've always done it. Just now you get to do it more than ever before through social media. Parents, grandparents, if you see your children struggling with their sense of, I'm not looking like everybody else and I'm not doing like everybody else, you need to talk to them about where your value is. It is not in being like everybody else. It's being who you are. For in being who you are, you have the gifts you need to fight your giants. David was a shepherd boy, a slinger. And by being himself, he had the advantage to overcome his giant. And so third, again, my other favorite scene as a boy growing up was when David takes off, he leaves Saul. He doesn't wear the armor. No, he stops and he picks up five rocks. Picks up five rocks and puts them in a pouch and he heads down the mountain. And Goliath is screaming and hollering at him and cursing him, cursing the God of Israel. And he carries his five rocks and finally he stops and says, look, you come to me with a sword and a spear. But I come to you in the name of the Lord. For David, it wasn't just about his ability. I come to you in the name of the Lord. To go forth in the Lord's name. To realize it is God who goes with you to help you deal with your giants. It's not just about you. It's how Admiral Stockdale was able to endure six years. The strength and the ability to endure and then to come home and let it go so he could live. It takes faith. You and I define faith as trusting in God's constant love of us, his children. When you and I trust in God's love towards us, then we discover we don't have to have all the ability. We trust God to help us go forward, to confront our giants, to be who we are, not to hide in fear, but to confront our giants. It was several years ago, I had told you how Marsh and I, we love adventure, and we decided we wanted to do something really different, and we got on a sailboat in Annapolis, a 46-foot sailboat, and we sailed from Annapolis out to Bermuda. There was the two of us and a professional captain. It took six to seven days, 675 miles straight out into the ocean. Well, let me tell you, if you want to feel small, get on a 46-foot boat, 13-foot wide, and go out in the middle of the ocean where you don't see land for days. You realize how small you are and how big the universe is. Truly, we had to kind of address some fears to get out there. There was a storm. We lived through it. We got all the way to Bermuda, and we were so excited. Georgetown was a wonderful harbor there on the side of the island. I remember how we came in, and, and we were going to go to the dock. And there they were doing it different. It's called Stern 2. Instead of pulling in like you pull a car into a parking lot, it's like you back into the parking lot, your space. You get out there, you drop your anchor and you let out line and you start backing towards the dock and then you get the rope tight and then you toss some lines up to the dock. Someone ties you off and now you're stable. 
And then what you do is they give you a board. It's about 15 foot long, a foot wide, two inches thick. And they put it on the dock and you'd put it on the back of your boat. And that's the gang plank that you can now walk on and off your boat. Now, the issue was that this was a big high concrete dock and the boats were setting lower. And so it was kind of uphill to do this. And the dock was kind of concrete and coming out and your boat was kind of coming out and there's a little bit of water down there and you know, you're about 15 foot above the water and it's 20 to 30 foot deep and this plank is one foot wide. And so we tied it to the dock and I put it on the back of the boat and they left and we're kind of sitting on the boat and there's boats all around us and most of the people on the boats around us are 20, 30 years old. And they're zipping up and down these things just right going. We're in our 50s. We're watching them walk and Marsha looks at me and I look at her and going, I don't know about this. So we wanted to get on the dock so we sit down on the board and inch our way along. <laughs> get up on the dock. And I said, look, we can do this. We just got to practice. So I, I got the board and I pulled it up on the dock and I laid it down. And and you know, a, a board 15 foot long, a foot wide, it's really not that hard to walk on. I mean, we walked down and walked back, walked down and walked. Sitting on the sidewalk, it was easy to walk on. And so we practiced. We knew we had the ability. We could do it. So I, I, I tied it off to the dock. I put it back on the boat and tied it off. And I said, go ahead, honey. She looked at me and was like, what? She said, you know, I'm in my 50s. I have garnered wisdom. I don't care what other people think. She sat down and she inched all along all the way back to the boat. And I did the same all the way back. But I said, wait, we've got the ability to do this. We're just focusing on the bad that can happen, what's making us afraid. And so we started getting up and trying to walk a little bit and a little more. And soon we'd walked all the way up and then we walked back down. Within a day or two, we were walking up and walking back and walking up and walking back all day long and no problem. And I remember standing there on the dock looking at this and thinking, that's life. There are times when I feel like I am walking on a path that is so scary. And I wonder if I am adequate to be able to confront my fear. And that's what faith is supposed to be about. Trusting in God's grace that I will have the ability, that I will have the strength to walk that small road in life when it is so difficult and know that I can do it. Not because of my ability, but because of God's grace. To be yourself and to trust in the name of the Lord, you're able to face your giants. We all have them. It's why the story of the underdog facing the strength the shepherd boy facing the giant. David versus Goliath. 
it's an important story to tell. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer. Amen.